Hello and welcome to the Investors Chronicle Companies and Market Show. I am John Human, editor of the Investors Chronicle. Uh, I'm joined today by Bradley Gerald, news editor. How are you doing, Bradley? Very good, thanks, John. Good. Ian Smith, companies editor. Hi, John. How are you doing? Not too bad. And Alex Newman. Hello. How are you, Alex? He's written well, the cover feature this week. Yes. Excellent. Gold. Lovely gold. Lovely, lovely gold. Which we'll talk about shortly. Um, got a lot to cover this week. We've been quite, quite busy. Um, obviously, the Brexit backdrop is, uh, is kind of uh, subsuming everything else. And we'll, we'll touch on that briefly. But let's start with some of the company's news, Bradley. Um, one of the things you mentioned in seven days is the Microsoft LinkedIn deal. And this is kind of uh, a nice little uh, entry into the kind of little M&A splurge you've seen this week. Yeah, it's been very busy um, you know, on the market, so to speak, in terms of deals. Um, so, I mean, Microsoft LinkedIn is by far the biggest, you know, huge tech deal deal out in the US, um, $26.2 billion Microsoft is paying for LinkedIn. Wow. Which is a, a big old price tag even for, you know, in tech land, I think. I mean, LinkedIn's one of those funny things, but I guess, you know, I don't know, it, it's an interesting decision to spend that much money on something which I, I'm not really sure how much revenue LinkedIn really makes. I mean, I suppose one of the angles to it would be that say you're going for an interview with someone and you've put in the, you put it in your Microsoft calendar, right? And then you can see because they have all their data on there, all of their background. I think it's kind of a data thing. That's my kind of perspective on it. Is that they're thinking they can create this huge kind of information beast, basically. But yeah, like you say, LinkedIn has had a number of problems in trying trying to monetize that data, and and they've now kind of started targeting like the corporate market and things like that. Do you pay? Do you pay for your LinkedIn uh, membership? No, I don't. So really? I'm a classic example. No, and they constantly ask me to even have a free trial, and I don't because I worry that if I do have a free trial, and then I might pay, but I, I won't. I, I guess maybe it's going the same way as um, a lot. You know, the estate agency business has the car, uh, secondhand car sales business has. It's all gone online, and those things have been a bit more easier to monetize. Maybe the marriage between um, Microsoft and LinkedIn will see, um, like Ian alluded to, those those corporate clients maybe willing to pay higher premiums as we go go on and on well it is a big old because they'll be able to search for the people they want and know more about them before they even decide to interview them or not well you better fill in your linkedin profile then hadn't you i did mine today <laughs> <laughs> that's always the best isn't it when someone fills that in you're like oh right. Oh yeah what are you up to <laughs> the problem is john, it tells, yeah. john looks at that a lot right who's know, filling it, it in it tells everyone when you've updated it which might be a perfectly innocent thing so yes yes well uh i don't think the market's entirely convinced by this not necessarily just because of the price tag but because Microsoft doesn't exactly have a brilliant track record when it comes to big deals true yeah let's, I mean let's let's forget about that anyway yeah I, I, don't, I, I don't it's hugely important to many of our readers who are much more interested in the UK markets and we've had a few deals in the UK so, yeah it's uh, been busy um yesterday uh Poundland's shares took a major major spike and it was in the afternoon and wasn't really quite or immediately quite clear why. Um, but what's transpired is that um, the South African group Steinhoff has um, come forward and said, it hasn't put forward a formal bid, there's no sort of figures behind it, but it wants to bid for Poundlands, basically. It's um, what it's saying, and it seems to have upped its stake considerably too. Well, Steinhoff is a company that uh, UK investors might be becoming increasingly familiar with because they've tried to buy home retail. Yep, this will be third time lucky, as you say. They tried to buy home retail, Darty. Did yep. they get Darty? No. They didn't get that either. Because Darty was already in agreement with FNAC, which is another French retailer. Um, and Steinhoff was hoping to kind of, you know, can put that deal to an end and win the race, so to speak, but it didn't. So this is its third attempt at the deal just this calendar year, I think, actually. And what, and what, I would ask, what unites all these businesses? 
Absolutely nothing, <laughs> except the fact they're retailers. Yeah, exactly. It, it's just a, it, well, it seems to be a European presence is obviously highly being sought after by the South African group. And um, yeah, I mean, I don't know. Poundland is an interesting one because obviously their um, recent purchase of ninety nine P stores has not gone that well. The ninety nine P stores needs a, a fair bit of work, and um, Harriet's been covering Poundland's results today, which obviously came out post our press deadline. Um, and the, the the table just looks terrible. I mean, the earnings are heavily down, EPS is heavily down, the dividends cut, yet the shares are actually up marginally because of this um, excitement around a potential Steinhoff deal. And I guess if there is that pressure in Poundland, then Steinhoff maybe could get a good deal. So maybe even if it pays a bit of a premium, mm. actually it wouldn't be so much money that it might have spent, say, trying to buy home retail or um, Darcy. Yeah, Poundland's board has said basically do nothing. Though, and, it has because there's not a formal offer. And because also the current valuation is kind of a long way short of where they would hope to hope to get taken out at. Of course, it's a very long way short, but then that's partly their own fault given they uh, you know, they, they made the acquisition of 99p stores and um you might think that given there's only a penny between them it'd be mm. quite an easy uh, yeah. and smooth transition. But um I think the pound and uh, management has had to put in a lot of work um getting the nice nine P store estate into shape. But um, they have they have now incurred a lot of those costs, and yeah, the the full year figures today have been bad. But precisely because of the costs of integrating those stores, and it will be interesting to see how the trading gets on. But I think they still face that big challenge, and we saw the numbers from B and M Value Retail um, a few weeks ago of they are growing turnover by opening stores. There's only so many stores you can open, and like for like sales at Poundland uh, were down four percent, you know, in, in the existing store network. So. It's not like their current business is firing on all cylinders because we know the pressures there from it, you know, that we're facing discounters. So whether or not, I think what we'll start to see is whether the Poundland brand is strong, you know, and it's strong enough to kind of pull up the 99p stores and kind of create a business that can start to grow comparable sales. And so I'm just trying, trying not to that. burst out yeah. laughing. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Um, yes, uh, yeah. So I'm very sorry. Uh, I just the Poundland brand, and I, it's just it seems sort of somewhat farcical. Mm. But there you go. Um, well, I mean, it's, it's been a rapidly growing retailer. Yeah. You look in the past decade. I mean, it's been astonishing growth, really. And I guess the problem now is, as Ian alludes to, is that yes, it's all very well and good if you can keep opening stores and locations you're not present in, and therefore see total sales rise. But if people are getting bored of your existing estate very, very quickly. That's a problem. Yeah. It's also not cheap. I think as some people are saying it's kind of cheap. It's cheap compared to B&M. Um, it trades just in advance of conviviality retail, which is obviously a different kind of retailer, but it kind of hits the kind of um, bargain end of the market. But conviviality is trying to become more of a, a wholesaler anyway. Yeah, exactly. And I just, I, I struggle to see if they come in at a, a strong p- premium to the current share price, uh, where the value is for Steinhoff. But, mm. Yeah. I mean, you've got to you've got to think as well. Uh, everything's a pound in uh, in Poundland. We're also hearing of the dire outlook for the pound should should we broke votes and leave the EU. I mean, presumably things will uh, cost them a little bit more if that were to happen. You know, does one pound store become one pound twenty store? Yeah, we'll find out. Or one pound store will be you can only buy sort of you know some chocolate bars for a pound, but well, not much the, else. Drop or... the size of everything. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a funny one. Cool. I mean, let's move on from Poundland. Uh, we had another couple of deals uh, more in the industrial side of things. So we've got. 
Premier Farnell, which is an electronics distributor, yes. uh, which is being snapped up by a Swiss group. That's it, and they've had a bit of a tough time, Premier Farnell. Ordinarily, as um, Alex says in his piece, the surprises in result statements have been profit warnings, but thankfully for investors this time, it's a it's a buyout, and the shares um, spiked strongly on this, and... Um, I think anyone in, in Premier Final will be will be pleased with this outcome, um, providing obviously the deal does go through, which for all intents and purposes looks like it absolutely will. And um, all cash, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Nice. Uh, and uh, of course, we have in the takeover section uh, British Polythene Industries, which is uh, on the radar of RPC. Yep, exactly. So again, um, kind of like cap, you know, capping the busy week in M and A territory. Um, it's. It, I mean, British Polythene. It did um, announce improved trading uh, fairly recently, so it's, there was a bit of strength kind of coming from the business anyway. Um, but yeah, again, I mean, you know, the buyout by RPC, you know, looks looks to be a pretty decent price. Um, and again, I think I don't think investors in uh, British Polythene would be too uh, put off by by that deal. And it, it makes sense um, in terms of they've got this 2020 strategy of consolidation within Europe, um, and you know, being a plastics company, kind of building up their um, presence in polythene makes makes sense. Yeah, so it kind of is one of those where they're doing what they said they would do. Mm. Hey, one of the things that struck me about uh, both the takeover of or the potential takeovers of Poundland and Premier Farnell is that you know, as I mentioned uh, not a few minutes ago, uh, there are suggestions that the pound uh, could be substantially weaker in the in the weeks ahead. I mean, is this the, is this the time to make the offer? Should they wait a bit for the uh, you know, the pound to get weaker still, and their buying power to increase? Or you know, are these companies betting on the fact that we will remain and the pound might actually sort of strengthen again? Yeah. Um, I mean, who who knows? Um, and let's not answer, try and answer that question because it has no answer right now. But let's talk about our Brexit coverage this week because you wrote a big piece. Yep, I wrote a piece in the new spotlight. Just kind of looking, I guess, at um, you know it, the markets have been incredibly pressurised by um, the Brexit debate, uh, particularly in the past sort of week, ten days, as the the polls um, are showing a much closer fight between the in and the out camps. Mm. Um, closer, swinging dramatically. Well, yeah. away from the Remain campaign. Well, yes, yeah, yeah. But but becoming more like a 50-50 race or yeah, maybe even yeah. slightly in some cases the polls are putting leave ahead. Um, but as, interesting, as, as those polls have got tighter and, and in some instances leave may even be gaining the positive ground, what you've seen is yields on UK government bonds fall and that means that basically prices are rising. So it suggests that more people are buying UK government bonds as insurance, presumably. Potentially, yeah, and um, I mean the the yields on them are, are paltry. I mean they're they're very very low historically. Well, I think the German uh, Bund went into negative yields. Well, the ten year German Bund this week for the first time went negative. Japan, a lot of debt there is negative. So actually, there's about ten trillion dollars. I think the figure is of government global government debt yielding less than zero. So actually, if a ten year UK government bonds on like I think it's about one point two percent or something. That's quite good in the relative sense. Um, and actually, it seems that from the people I spoke to, it seems that actually bonds are maybe perhaps best placed to perform well post-referendum regardless of the outcome. Not everyone agrees with that. Some, Not yes. everyone, no. And I think you spoke to one guy who said that it was just garbage. Well, yeah. I mean, well, I, I'm putting words in his mouth. He didn't yeah. quite say that. He said it was rum reasoning. Well, he just said that it's rum reasoning to suggest that um, you know, investment in a 10-year government bond at such levels is a lower risk investment than a you know a high quality global equity that pays a dividend multiple times higher. Um, I think I would tend to agree with that. I think I probably possibly would as well. But there are very, very good and strong and sound reasons why bonds could could rally regardless. 
Mm. I mean, some yeah, some economists forecast that if um, the UK were to vote out of the EU, um, that there would be a spike in, in bond yields because of kind of concerns about the UK economy. Uh, but I suppose a spike as your, in bond yields. Yeah, as in, it's a bond yields would be hit if people were more concerned about yeah the UK. So, uh, so yeah, we're seen as less of a safe asset. Right, right. Yeah, right. So, but as your piece makes clear, this is an international market, and there's a huge demand, especially institutional demand, mm. um, for some kind of income or say some kind of safety. So, uh, yeah, I don't know if I kind of buy into that. Well, yeah, I mean, you there are, will be big change. You're a, you're a pensions guy, yeah. Former pensions former pensions guy. guy. I mean, a lot of a lot of the buying of bonds is is a legislis- legislative thing. Now, yeah, it's a legislative thing, as you say, and and that is what always what amused me when you heard kind of politicians boasted about how the UK was so well respected in the world, as as can be demonstrated by our bond yields um, and the fact we can borrow so cheaply in the market. When they know there's a huge um, a weight of institutional money that has to buy more and more uh, government guilds. So you know, and that's not obviously just UK. So um, yeah, I think be careful. Um, in terms of reading the yields, in terms of how it reflects the UK political context, I just think, as your piece makes clear, I think you're absolutely right. You know, there are there are sort of fundamental reasons why it could happen. I mean, sort of, um, in research from GLT Employee Benefits, which I quote in the piece, shows that there's a record three hundred and thirty billion pounds in bonds across um, defined benefit pension schemes, which is now sixty one percent of their total assets compared to fifty percent six years ago. So. There's been a lot of buying, partially because they have to, partially because of asset allocation reasons on behalf of pension funds. But also, as I just said, actually, in a relative sense, UK government bonds are, you know, maybe not say high yielding, but, you know, they're not negative. So you're going to get that sort of continued buying. And some people think that will happen regardless of whether we're in or out of the EU, because that's a kind of a market fundamental thing that is irrespective of the referendum outcome. Mm, Absolutely. Absolutely. John, you, you talked in your uh, editorial. You, yeah, the, t- take us through your view on this. You think that people kind of overstate the impact that um, Brexit um, fears or otherwise have on um, certain market indicators? Well, I, th- I, th- I think, you know, there is no doubt that Brexit is, uh, or the threat of Brexit is having uh, an impact on markets. I mean, the, 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 the FTSE 100, for example, sold off very heavily. Uh, over the last week, um, you know, it's it's below. It lost all the gains it made in May, um, but you, you know, think there's two ways to read that. But it's well, it's down over the year anyway, uh, as are a lot of uh, major indices. Uh, you know, things out there are not that great. Uh, you know, we had uh, the Fed put on hold its interest rate decision or its interest rate upgrade once again uh, on the basis that the US economy is not as strong as he thought, as it thought it was. You've got uh, a US election that's going to be fought later this year between uh, a candidate uh, that, that you know is perhaps part of the establishment and one that would be described as a populist, and I think there's a lot of uncertainty around that. You've got uh, military tensions that uh, you know haven't gone away on the on Europe's eastern borders you've got a, a refugee crisis you've got lots of trouble in the middle east you've got a slowdown in china and yet it's brexit that's causing all of the current panic i just don't buy it yeah <laughs> well, I mean, that's, that's possibly true but in terms of the in terms of the fall in sort of um, particularly uk government bond yields but european as well uh, a, a few of the people I spoke to did say there's a, been a very, very strong correlation very recently um, with the Leave camp gaining ground in the polls 
and the yields falling. Maybe so. Especially with Sterling, so as you said. Yeah, no, but I, I equally heard someone suggest the other day that, you know, uh, this is this is essentially speculation that's driving a lot of this as well. This is trading activity. You know, the currency movements yeah. are not fundamental, but they're driven by trading, by by people actually speculating on where, where the currency is going to go to make a short-term profit. So, yeah, Brexit may have something to do with that, but it's nothing fundamental. No, but and also you're right that there are other concerns that are much larger and have been persistent way beyond Brexit was in sort of front and centre of investors' minds, like China like subdued global growth so there are other drivers that I think obviously investors in the market are aware of but at the moment it does seem to be that the, the Brexit sort of um, you know the Brexit debate is certainly front and foremost yeah well of course it is and we've got lots of coverage of Brexit in our magazine this week and you know who isn't covering Brexit it is absolutely you know uh, terrifying and exciting and equal prospects I've, I've never seen any any political uh, sort of uh, campaign generate quite so much as attention as this. And given it's so close, I, I really don't think you can say, I don't think you are saying, I really don't think you can say that Brexit is, is priced in. You know, I think that the scenarios um, have been quite wide in terms of what economists think might happen over the longer term to our uh, national income. I, I, the I, event. So I think that if were there uh, a vote to leave, it'll be very interesting to see, um, you know, the impact that will have on these uh, metrics that we've been talking about. What I will say about the, the way the Brexit campaign has been fought um, I think that the level of debate has been derisory. I think it's absolutely uh, awful the way that statistics have been misused by both sides of the campaign. Um, I think that you know it's, it's being fought on two issues. One is the economy, one is immigration. I don't think either of them uh, are being presented in, in a particularly fair uh, fashion. Um, I, I think that the, uh, the, the, the Brexiteers' case for immigration is overstated uh, and I think that uh, it's, it's, being, it's being presented in a very... Uh, unsavoury way often uh, but equally I think the economic Armageddon case presented by the Remain side uh, is equally unsavoury especially when the Chancellor uh, starts uh, threatening uh, tax increases in an emergency budget which quite frankly I don't think he had any right to do and doesn't look like it would happen even if we were to vote to exit. And I think, and you'll be taken to a boat later, won't you, to be uh, shouting that from well, the loud Well, at least there have been some moments of amusement in this campaign. The sight of uh, an, an Irish pop star swearing at a load of fishermen uh, really does top, top the bill. It really does uh, reek of the day to day. You couldn't make it up. The day to day, obviously, being a satirical news program. Yeah, uh, from the I agree 90s. with you. The level of the debate has been absolutely terrible. I think they, I think our politicians, generally, with with some notable exceptions, should be ashamed of themselves um, because I don't think any of us are, are really in a position to to actually make a, a, an informed decision here. We haven't been presented with anything that is particularly enlightening. Uh, it's almost like you shouldn't run the country by referendums. Yeah, but then. You know, this is such a this is such an important thing. You know, this does in, in, involve sovereignty. Uh, it, it really is something that, um, that the nation should have a say in. I don't I don't object to the fact that we have a referendum. I think people are actually saying uh, today to David Cameron, uh, you know, why on earth did you do this? You know, what a, what a, you know, he is being accused of doing this to, to essentially overcome infighting in his party and has put the entire future of the world at risk. Um, but if it goes the wrong way for him, it will be an absolutely historic mistake. And, you know, probably one of the largest mistakes ever made by um, a kind of post-war prime minister to call something on the basis of an inter-party um, dispute. Maybe so. Um, but, but, uh, yeah, but we, we broke our uh, rule of not uh, straying onto political No, matters. no, but we haven't actually come down one side or the other mm. here. I think I've presented a fairly balanced uh, view there. What I will say is I do not buy the scare stories. I do not believe that the, e, uh, that the UK... Oh, I did a terrible thing. They all said the EU... <laughs> 
I do not believe that the UK uh, will be cast adrift uh, uh, into you know a, a really terrifying future where we're all living in mud huts again, which is kind of you know taking to an extreme the, the economic arguments being put forward by apparently independent bodies, and you know I think some of that has to be called into question as well. What I do honestly believe is that it's really o- opened up for all to see some of the the real wounds, not just in the in UK politics, in in European politics. You know, I hope whatever way it goes that people look at this and think actually there's some serious sorting out to, to do here uh, both in the UK both at a European level uh, as well and I, I, I don't hold my breath I, I couldn't agree more I think one of the things we learned in the last election was the fragmentation of the country how the cities are different from the countryside mm. um, and how different age groups I mean that's always the case but I think it was especially stark in terms of the electoral map at the last election and I think if you look at the kind of demographic voting intention for this election you really have quite a big gap between young and old so although if the the um, website crashed because of um, people registering to vote the chances are those people registering are young therefore the chances of them the direction of their votes a lot more likely to be remain so it would be quite interesting yeah maybe we're, we're in london i mean you don't find many uh brexiteers you know hanging around well, the, uh, exactly the, in the liberal saying. media for example well, that's um, exactly not in this I'm building saying. either not in this <laughs> building not in this building at all but you know i live out in essex and you don't find many uh, you don't find many uh, campaigning to stay there you know you've got you 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 drive around you get on the train the big red posters in the farmers fields are everywhere well that's that's what i'm saying is that you've kind of got the the london liberal mindset and if you look at the kind of mayoral election how it reflected that and um london in terms of where it sits on the political spectrum you then have scotland which is Mm. uh, very much more separated you have wales if you look at you know the kind of intention to vote and um in certain areas yeah it's, it's very split yeah, I mean, the other thing I would say is, uh, and I've said this in my editorials many times before, I don't believe that bigger is better. I don't believe big companies uh, work very well a lot of the time. I actually think that, you know, decision making on a smaller scale can often be much, much more effective. You know, this was following on from our AIM debate last week. I think, you know, there's a lot of great management of AIM companies. Entrepreneurial behaviour is fantastic. Big companies, you know, they tend to stagnate and the bureaucracy gets in the way of, of quick decision making. Amazon big? Yeah, still quite an entrepreneurial company, yeah, though, exactly. really. Yeah. Microsoft big? Not what it once was. Exactly. And that started as a small company. Anyway, we, uh, we've gone very political. But I think we've, we've kept it fair there. Um, I mean, let's turn back to takeovers quickly because there was one takeover that didn't happen this week, which was a Aviva. Absolutely. Which you, as you pointed out, it was one of the big risers in the, uh, on the Seven Days page, but uh, the share price had come back. Yeah, so readers will have to sort of read the small print on Seven Days because um, Aviva is listed as one of the top risers of the week, but that is the week to the 14th of June. But by the 15th, um, the shares had fallen so much that it made it into the little numbers section we have. So the, the shares dropped 17%, so giving up that gain and a bit more. It's been um, a tough time for Old Aviva. It, it's basically provides software that you reduce to design uh, large industrial plant boats. And the oil, I guess the oil price plunge has been a, a horror. For that yeah, exactly. Which, which is potentially part of the reason why it made it a potential takeover target for the French uh, heavyweight Schneider Electric. Um, they, they had started talks months ago. I think it was at the turn of the year, roughly. And then things kind of went quiet. They petered out a bit. And then this week, um, there was an announcement that the talks are back on. We're going to try and get this done. And then I think it was about 48 hours later, um, it was off again, and it seems like that that is like off now, off properly. Not, not going to try for a third time. Yeah, it's a very unusual way of going about. It was over a company. Yeah, there it you was. Go. I mean, it's strange yeah. that in such a small space of time, the the view had changed so dramatically. But um, yeah, it did hit the shares. Um, uh, yeah, giving up any gains that were really only produced by the speculation of the takeover. Indeed. I mean, talking of speculation, another mooted takeover uh, that never happened. Ricardo. Uh, now, for a while, this was propped up 
uh, by a belief that Amazon might be interested in its food delivery platform. Doesn't look like it's the case anymore. Sadly for them, no. And not only that, it's been compounded by the fact that one of their core partners, um, Morrison's, has actually tied up with Amazon, uh, which has now launched its... Ouch, exactly. It's now launched its own Amazon Fresh service um, in 69 postcodes in uh, East and North London. Um, so, yeah, uh-huh. yeah, Amazon has hit the UK um, and it's kind of a small operation. But I've looked at that this week and whether we should play it down. Some people have. It's obviously just getting on its uh, feet and it will take a while. Um, but if you look at the way that Amazon has grown in the States, I mean, I'm talking about across the business, it has shown an ability to get into different areas of retail and, and establish and kind of knock off the perch, establish players. Yeah, well, I wouldn't uh, I wouldn't bet against it. Wouldn't bet against it succeeding at all. Um, I mean, you know, Amazon is a company we all love to hate. It's destroyed our bookshops. It's destroyed our record shops. But we're going to buy from it anyway because because uh, it's very very convenient. No, exactly right. And I think well, that's that's my point is that you can't underestimate the trend towards convenience. If you ask people that are paid up, uh, Amazon Prime subscribers probably shouldn't. <laughs> yeah, free advertising for them. But if you talk to, I people do have that, Amazon Prime. Oh, right, right. Okay. The, it's not the, very good actually. Right. Okay. But I talk, if you talk to other people that have Amazon Prime, <laughs> there's, this, there's very much the ability, the idea of that I will pay for convenience, and the, that the whole idea of that has caught on, and Amazon is doing very well out of that. And I think that the kind of don't underestimate uh, underestimate convenience um, and ease when it comes to food. And I think that the service will probably get there. And I think it's worrying. So obviously, we saw Sainsbury's buy um, Argos, um, the, the residual business of home retail group. And I think you can see what they're trying to build there. You know, a multi-channel, um, for kind of point first point of call retailer of all of your household goods. Um, so, yeah, I don't underestimate the impact of Amazon on the market. Ocado, obviously, is just a small player, but look at the way its shares have performed over the past year terribly. Mm. It's still one of the most shorted stocks on the market, as uh, Alex pointed out in a recent blog. I've always been dubious. Um, ever since it floated um, I never felt that it had the scale to really make a difference on the food retail market uh, and I still don't think it has much more than a percent uh, of that market it kind of shifted its its emphasis towards becoming essentially a, a platform provider for other people who I mean it was at the time obviously selling Waitrose food but it, you know the idea the big idea was that it was going to cut deals like this with a lot of people the only one it's ever cut since was with Morrison's and and now that looks like it's in jeopardy and there's no other there's no other companies out there as far as i'm aware that are queuing up to get onto to ricardo's platform yeah and they're trying to build their own platforms as we're seeing the sainsbury's they're trying to build their own distribution networks mm. um and, and, and do it themselves well i guess as well i mean if you know if this trend towards online shopping is, is you know, gathering as uh, online food shopping is gathering as much momentum as we think it is you know these guys have also got very large store estates that they've got a milk and you know turning them into dark stores, uh, i.e. stores that just service an online uh, shopping uh, capability or actually picking from stores to, to, to underpin a, an online capability, you know, they're going to do that. And that's why it's interesting, actually, that um, Sainsbury's have put its chief financial officer in now to be the um, head of um, Home Retail Group. Mm. Um, and they've got a huge store rationalisation programme now between Argos and Sainsbury's to say, OK, which store do we want for which? You know, how do we think that um, retail landscape is going to map out? Where do we want the kind of click and collect stores? Um, how many of the um, Argos w- uh, concessions within the Sainsbury's do we want? Where do we want them? You know, I think it's actually not surprising, although I have slightly questioned it in this piece, that they 
they want someone that's going to be able to kind of manage the strategy of that um, and how that impacts on the group's numbers, which is going to be key because we know how much um, store rationalizations can affect supermarkets. Yeah, I mean, of all the supermarkets, I do I do believe that uh, Sainsbury's has demonstrated that it is the best the best managed of, of all of them. Uh, obviously, Tesco's has had its its problems. I mean, it tried to get into everything and it's pulled back from from a lot of things. Uh, I mean, it, Morrison's, I mean, you know, let's not go there. It's been uh, it's been a, a, a disaster. Uh, as though, which was, you know, the, the, the big threat from, uh, well, essentially it's a UK supermarket, but it's owned by Walmart. Um, they've, they've had a torrid time as well. I mean, you've, you've written about it briefly this week. Yeah, chief executive's gone. Yeah, they've had a bit of a, or how much he wanted to go, I don't know. But um, there was a statement by Walmart released that, um, so the, the executive at the moment is a guy called Andy Clark, and he's going to be stepping down next month, which probably tells you we need to know, really. And he's going to be replaced by Sean Clark. Who what is it with Clarks? I don't know. Apparently, there's no relation. Um, well, there was a. It was a. It was the uh, Philip Clark. Philip Clark. Tesco. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe if you're born a Clark, you're destined to be high up in a supermarket. Wow. Chain. Okay. Uh, Rather than a Clark. Well, yeah. <laughs> um, but Sean Clark is um, currently the chief executive of Walmart China, and he's going to be taking the the top job at ASDA. And I guess this kind of comes really as. Um, you know, I think as has suffered its seventh uh, consecutive quarter of like-for-like sales declines um, recently. So it's been under pressure, um, and obviously Walmart has decided to kind of take what it sees as um, some action to try and start writing that. Mm, good luck there. The supermarket wars don't see, uh, see no sign of abating. I mean, let's talk uh, about another company that's in the results section this week and also uh, your chart of the week uh, that has also used M&A, but uh, rather than being uh, on the target list, it's been an acquirer itself. Halma, you wrote that this week, didn't you, Alex? Yeah, Halma. Um, it's uh, the parent company of a, 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 of a group of technology companies. Um, it's it's been wildly, wildly successful. This this model of buying uh, buying companies in niche, high growth uh, areas exposed to health, environmental um, uh, issues, and uh, safety. Um, this this last year was the busiest they've ever had in terms of M and A. I think they spent something like. 193 million pounds on on acquiring four four new companies. Despite that, they've they've upped their dividend for the 37th consecutive year, which is what the chart is about. Yeah, indeed. good, extraordinary yeah. record, really. It's, it's for for an engineer as well, yeah. which you know usually a highly cyclical business. It's really it's really impressive. Somehow, Halmer's found this balance between buying a high growth and sometimes fairly speculative companies and managing them as as, as a sort of portfolio globally. And being an, an excellent income stock, really. So we worked out that, you know, if you'd bought the shares, even I think at the turn of the century, you would have been rewarded 16 times over if you had reinvested the dividends. So they're they're increasing their dividend uh, continually by by at least five percent year on year. And and I mean we we've we've still got them on the on a buy. Uh, Investec has uh, suggested you should apply something like a 50 percent premium to their shares because of this reliability. I think we we tend to agree. Management very very confident about the prospects for for acquiring more businesses as well. Mm, no, an amazing story, an amazing story, and you know, a real good uh, advertisement for uh, for what you mentioned earlier, Bradley. The you know buying quality equity. Absolutely. Let's stick with results. Uh, Ashted, Ian. We like Ashted too. We like Ashted too, um, and Ashted likes its shareholders, um, and it's. Um, um, had a marked step up in their annual dividend, just under a half, um, and it's also planning a two hundred million pound buyback. 
and actually things look good. It's, it's, it has a heavy exposure to the US construction market um, and a recovery there um, has done really well and obviously it has this good capital model as explained by um, Mark Robinson um, who covers the sector in this tip um, which allows it to um, you know sell used equipment and that means that it kind of doesn't consume as much capital so what does it say that yeah its replacement spend is expected to be much lower in 2017 so there's reasons to be um, kind of cheerful about the future too yeah it's, it's obviously operationally geared and it has a lot of exposure to macro factors so you do need to look at um what you think of the construction markets and, and the uk uh, pmi at the moment is a bit wobbly in the uk to say the least um but the us has been strong um although some numbers came out yesterday on that um and uh, but yeah, they, they seem to be doing well for now. Well, you would imagine if uh, you know whatever happens in the U.S. elections later this year. I mean, you know, it's long been suggested that much of you at the U.S. infrastructure, you know, the public infrastructure, the roads and such the like, are not in the greatest condition. Yeah, if there you, is some big spending to come there still. Yeah, if you're into wall building, then you'll vote for Donald Trump. <laughs> and then. And if you want bridges, I thought we, I thought we were straying away from the political <laughs> side of things. In uh, yeah, sorry, should we start that again? No, uh, no, no, that's no, no, fine. Um, right, yeah, keep that. In. Um, yeah, I think you're completely right across the US political spectrum. For a long time, they've talked about how worn down US infrastructure is. So yeah, there's still m- much construction to be be done there. Okay, uh, Watkin Jones, this is a new one. Uh, Watkin Jones, yeah, so really interesting. interesting. Yeah. So we spoke, we had Jonas on here. Uh, I think it was last week was last week, wasn't it? And he was talking about this this idea of build to rent. So, so actually institutional ownership uh, of uh, rental properties. And Watkin Jones is there. That's what it's involved in. And it's just there that kind of at the nick of time, really, because um, over the years, it's been difficult for institutional investors to kind of get into the kind of residential um property market they've been always been heavy investors in commercial property um but there's the certain risks of residential property has been harder for them to get into but we've seen it with kind of legal in general getting involved in build to rent schemes and there is very much an appetite now for kind of putting money into you know what they see as a fixed income alternative something that they can put some capital in and receive a, you know a guaranteed income mm. from um but there's another factor which helps Watkin Jones, which is um, the need for to accommodate the student population um, in kind of urban areas. So they are doing t- well on both counts. They kind of, uh, I think the majority of it is student accommodation, but also it's kind of built to rent um, outside of kind of the university sector. Um, yeah, and they're doing very well. What they do is kind of this end-to-end process. So they procure the land, build the property, and then they manage the property for the investor so they don't have to get involved in all that so stuff. So all the investors do is provide some capital. Exactly. Wonderful. And it also means for Watkins Jones, they don't actually technically own the property, which kind of is quite good for them, um, you know, in terms of their investment risk. Yeah, nice um, business then. Yeah, it works well. And, and it's in yeah, it's in a good sector. And if you see all the kind of university accommodation that's going up around, well, where I live in East London, where Bradley lives in, uh, you know, just all over London, there's obviously pl- plenty to do. Absolutely. Let's talk transport. I do that through gritted teeth. You, you love know, my, about you know my views on trains. Um, but you've had a couple of bits of news from the uh, from the railways this week. Yep, um, one good, one bad. Um, first group had results uh, yesterday, I think it was, no, sorry, day before. Um, and actually, I think they, they obviously surprised on the upside, really, because although revenue was down about 14%, that was uh, you know a largely known quantity, given that they'd lost um, a first Capital Connect and the first ScotRail franchises. 
Um, but pre-tax profits are actually 7% up. So um, there's also been some good um, management of costs there. Um, things in their bus business are not going too badly. And um, they've got a very big US business, actually, First Group. So they run um, three businesses out in the US. There's First Student, which kind of does what it suggests. Um, I occasionally get a First Group bus. Do you? Yeah, five pounds single to uh, the next town. It's good money. <laughs> Great money. That's Great that, business maybe, to be in. Maybe that's why the profits are up so much. <laughs> Um, and yeah, ba- basically, they um, the first student's done pretty well, although um, it suffered from a f- um, from fewer days of the school year, but that will be made up next year. Mm. Um, they had a bit of trouble with the oil market because their first transit business um, does have a presence in Canada. But generally, basically, it's kind of just a, a pretty good set of results. And I think the shares just were up about 10% in early trading because I don't think people expected quite no. such a performance no one expects anything of the trains bradley they don't so when they when they turn up on time or they uh, deliver results in line with expectations it's a bonus um go ahead though not so good no go ahead so talking about trains arriving on time um the big problem here is the um govia thameslink rail franchise to give it its proper name which effectively is um a shunt together of thameslink southern and great northern franchises so it's the uk's biggest rail franchise and some people think it could even be europe's based on passenger the amount of passengers who use it but the franchise has been dogged with problems ever since um go ahead took it over in 2014 um and basically what they said um, earlier this week was that they were expecting over the life of the contract which i believe is seven years um margins to be three percent they're now going to be half that because of the investment that govia thameslink is going to have to make into the um into the franchise that's something that's that's huge it's very big yeah i mean obviously it's a big franchise and it's go ahead is sort of um a partner with um in a joint venture that runs the franchise um but yeah it's, it's a big a big big deal saying your margin on a, on well britain's biggest you know rail franchise is going to half because of the extra you know, cash you've got to put into it and um i mean it just scores terribly for sort of punctuality passenger approval well, it's it was on the to... news this morning again i think as well over the whole problem they've got with industrial relations with the unions who are not happy and they, they've also been on the uh the receiving end of uh, a lot of difficulties relating to the renovation of london bridge station i mean uh, around yes, the corner here. some of this is a p- partly out of their control i mean you know they, they, they obviously bid for the franchise knowing what was going on at london bridge and it wasn't a surprise to them but nonetheless uh, the work there have caused the the company a lot of issues um in the long term you know when london bridge is done and commuters can, who use that station can breathe a sigh of relief then potentially this franchise will be a great asset to go ahead but at the moment it's proving nothing but problematic yeah i, n- I never thought i'd see the day when when i wasn't the most put upon commuter in the office uh, traveling on greater anglia it's been it's been refreshing to hear the horror stories coming from someone else <laughs> <laughs> Your, your 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 journey to work is luxurious compared to those uh, tackling yeah, London Bridge. That's what, what I'm hearing. Uh, okay, right. That's enough of the, uh, the the company side of things. Alex, let's talk about the cover feature. I think it's really timely, and uh, it's a really good feature. It's talking about gold. Yeah. Now, I think you know what you're essentially saying is you don't have to be a conspiracy nut to to, to think that gold is a good investment. Mm, yeah, and you and you also don't have to. I would argue worry that gold price the gold price has risen sort of twenty percent so far this year to think, oh now I've missed out on the missed out on the fund because the point of gold really is is sort of a long term insurance uh, form of insurance for any any portfolio the reason i mean the reason just to just to sort of recap on why it might be timely or we're arguing it might be timely although although when we were discussing this we, mm. we were at pains to to not present it as a timing issue 
Yeah, indeed, indeed. But I mean, it, I guess a reason why everyone's talking about gold this year is in the first quarter, you've had massive, massive inflows into ETFs, big institutional bets on gold. Hedge funds are pouring lots and lots of money into into gold. And that has primarily been driven by two two reasons, both of which we've already talked about on this podcast. The first is event risk. So Brexit, US presidential elections, Greece, uh, you know, broad, broader concerns about Chinese slowdown, what that means for the global economy. These are all sort of known unknowns. People can't figure out the, you know, what's going to happen if Donald Trump gets in, if, you know, if, if uh, Britain leaves the, the, the EU. So gold is a safe, you know, is a, is, a, is a safe bet in times of serious risk. The second one, which we talked about very briefly, is, is negative interest rate policy. So if it's, if it's costing pension funds, hedge funds to, to keep their money in a bank overnight, then it's, you know, that's when they start to look further up the, the asset chain. And gold or cash, even in, in some instances, is, is preferable to, to keeping uh, assets when you say cash, bank. you mean mm. cash that's not in a bank. You mean cash that's stuffed under the mattress. Well, I mean, for I don't think you know the mattress <laughs> is that big in uh, in some of these insurance funds. But you have you know we have seen it. Alliance apparently you know they 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 have assessed that the insurance on holding cash is cheaper than keeping it uh, in the ECB. Munich, Munich Ray, the biggest reinsurance firm in the world, has uh, you know has upped its its bets on on physical gold. So these are serious institutions taking taking bets because they don't really want to deal with the costs of parking their money in uh, in negatively yielding assets. Yeah, I mean, one of the big objections uh, to holding gold, or to gold as an investment, not necessarily to holding it, was that it doesn't actually pay anything as as, as a kind of dividend, as a coupon. It's, exactly. y- it's yieldless. That's because it's but, money, yeah. Okay, but I like, I like this bit of the feature. Mm. But so, so now that it's, it's yieldless, but then so is a lot of other stuff now, so that argument, that objection has kind of disappeared. Yeah. But, but let's go back to this point that you've just you've just raised. It's money, and mm. I like this. But cash in a bank is money, is it not? It's not because Ooh. because that's someone else's liability. So the moment it's deposited in a bank, you're then you're then subject to the, uh, you know, you're you're subject to the uh, vagaries and risks inherent in the financial system. So you know, any any I don't know if any of our readers held their you know have bank accounts in Greece or Cyprus, but you know, in the last few, last few years we've seen examples there when when there's a you know. There's a call by the ECB on the bank deposits there. Can you get your cash out then? Not necessarily. So does it matter that there's a yield if you can't, you know, can't get it out? That's the argument that that gold bulls would would uh, present back uh, against the against the argument that, that that gold is not money. Okay. No, it's, I mean it's fascinating. I hadn't really. I must admit, I'd never really thought about it like that. But it does make a lot of sense. Mm. But obviously, you still have. I mean, you mentioned that uh, you know large institutions are holding gold. Presumably, these these institutions have enormous vaults buried deep in uh, their, their offices somewhere. The average man on the street doesn't have that luxury. What does he do? Well, um, I mean, we we talk about a number of ways you can get exposure to gold. So, I mean, you may not have a, a large vault. You may not even want to you know store store gold under your bed. But there are you know there are there's a growing market out there for for uh, bullion vaults where you can you know you can pay a uh, a uh, a vault owner for the gold they'll store it on your behalf you can even ask at you know uh, uh, this may be in a slightly uh, dystopian insurance case but you can even ask to take out your your gold on demand and they'll they'll post it to you the next day so there you know that there is a market for a kind of hybrid market for someone else looking after your gold and if you want it taking it from them so um so it's it just because you know you're you, you may be a man a man on the street there are there is a growing market out there and a, an existing market 
where you can get access to. Okay. I mean, if you don't want to go through that, if you don't necessarily trust that, you don't want physical gold in any form, there are other ways to, to own gold. Yeah. So, um, uh, so obviously you've got ETFs and that, you know, that's been the, that's been one of the big reasons for the, the price surges, uh, the price surge this year. ETFs basically um, uh, function uh, or gold ETFs function whereby the ETF manager will hold gold in a vault and the value of the ETF or the, the fund will be based on the value of the underlying gold. So it's a paper, it's a paper contract in effect. Uh, but they have the gold. But they have the gold. There, there is a little slight caveat to that. Not all, not all ETFs necessarily have the gold. They may have a claim on the gold, but some people are quite worried that there are multiple claims on gold allocated in certain banks. So, you, you know, we, uh, some some listeners maybe uh, may have heard the recent story that Chinese uh, banks have started to buy up some of the some of the London uh, gold vaults. So, notably, uh, Barclays recently sold their. Uh, sold their gold vault somewhere within the M25. There may be multiple claims on the gold bars in that vault, and there, are, you know, there are some concerns. Some investors who prefer to hold physical gold uh, are, are concerned that um, if you know if there was a call on the ETFs, they may not be able to liquidate those assets. Okay, let's say you're not interested in buying gold at all. Um, you don't actually want the, the the physical commodity, the underlying, uh, the exposure to the underlying commodity, but you want exposure to, to the, the, the rising gold price. And this is a bit of a timing issue. You can look at gold miners and you've done that in the future as well. Yeah. Um, so um, obviously the, uh, uh, you know, the, the gold miners stand to, to to make the most and lose the most out of the, the, volatility, the volatility in gold. So if your all-in sustaining costs, for example, are $1,000 and the price rises from 1100 to 1200 your profit margin is doubled. So there's, there's, I think there's a correlation uh, of about sort of two times volatility of the normal gold price. Um, we picked out a number of uh, gold companies, which we, you know, we write about all the time which we think offer some some potentially good exposure. There's lots of varying degrees of of risk in there. And there's a company, Rand Gold Resources, which is one of the biggest gold miners. Lots of people have already bought into Rand Gold. It's already quite highly highly valued, partly on the back of this this run here. One I, I quite like, if I was going to pick one, is Pan African Resources, which also comes with a yield, which if you're going to invest in a gold mine, I think arguably that this is the main point to invest in in, in, in a mining stock is to get something back out of it because otherwise you're just subject to the volatility of the price and you've mm. got no you know you've not got a, got no additional you know bull case I, I would argue so pan-african resources is also in quite a, a low valuation they've got these these two mines in in south africa which are you know very very long life mines high grade uh good good labor relations uh that's i, I think that's a good pick of you know the you know the the, the volatility and reliability of gold miners out there in london okay brilliant well solid gold it's a great feature that, that really talks about what, why it is actually a solid investment so uh, thank you very much alex okay i mean just to quickly talk you through what we got left in the magazine it was quite a busy week on the results and news front as we've said there's a lot more results in there than, than we've had time to discuss um, we have a decent sector focus there on uh, the asset management industry algae hall is looking at his blue chip momentum screen which is not doing so well uh, unsurprisingly given the market backdrop uh, lots in the personal finance and fund 
fun section, which they will no doubt talk about on their podcast tomorrow. The usual tips, a continuation of our 50 Object series. Our private investor diarist is in this week's issue. He's always a good read. The Copoc indicators, which I put together, uh, which you'll be pleased to hear are in there at last, which are, are as clear as mud. Contradictory and confusing signals there. Um, anyway, thank you very much. Uh, we have five minutes to get to a television screen because the football is about to kick off. Now you know what time we record the podcast. But anyway, pick up the magazine, all good news agents. Uh, why you should hold gold. Solid gold, £4.70. And uh, one reader has uh, suggested to me that I also suggest that you subscribe if you would prefer to have a more constant relationship with the Investors Chronicle its content. And I fully agree. So go and subscribe. Thank you very much. Thank you, Bradley. Thank you, Ian. Thank you, Alex. And I'll see you all again next week. <laughs>